So quick summary as you guys are finding your place. If this is your first uh, week here, we're in, our, we're in week four of our series through the book of Galatians. Uh, here's the situation. This is what's going on. Some churches uh, that the Apostle Paul planted in the province of Galatia uh, started deserting the gospel that he originally preached to them, and they were swapping it out for a distorted one. And what was happening was that certain men were saying that in order to be saved, you must not only place your faith in Jesus, but you must also keep Jewish laws to, in order to seal the deal, to seal your salvation. Now, these men were convincing the Galatian churches that the gospel that they had learned from Paul wasn't enough because Paul actually wasn't an apostle. He wasn't even really who he said he was. He hadn't really been visited by Jesus. He hadn't been commissioned directly by Jesus, which is where we get our definition of what an apostle was. So Paul writes uh, the churches a letter and uh, he, uh, he's a little outraged. It says he was astonished. Um, and what he's done over the last two chapters that we spent our time in is he's uh, been spending some time defining what the authentic gospel really is and then defending the legitimacy of his call from Jesus as an authentic apostle. So that's where we sort of find ourselves today over the last three weeks. And today, Paul's going to sort of continue that, that defining and defending process, and he's going to be doing it by retelling a story to the Galatians about how he opposed the Apostle Peter to his face. He says, I like how Paul added, to his face, right? Um, and he did it because Peter was acting hypocritically, and it said that he was not keeping in step with the gospel, and Paul's like, I opposed him to his face. We're going to read that in one minute. So when we say hypocrisy, what, what do we mean by that? Well, here's how we're going to define hypocrisy. It's the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. So what that tells us is that there are expectations for the way a Christian is supposed to conduct themselves, Right? And I'm telling you, I know this is true that we've all been on the receiving end of what we would call conduct unbecoming of a Christian. Am I right about that? I mean, I remember there's been a couple times over the years in my life I've been a part of a church, a good church, a church that I loved, and some people that I had put my trust in ended up spreading gossip about me at a couple different points. You know, things about me that, that, that weren't true, and it did a lot of of damage, right? So who I thought they were, in a sense, that they betrayed those beliefs. I believe that these were brothers and sisters, right? But at some point, they fell into gossiping about me, and it did some damage because what had happened in that moment is they were not keeping in step with the gospel. And so what Paul is going to be pointing out here is that when we start straying like that from the gospel, even an inch, okay, we end up sliding off the tracks completely. And it's in these moments that we actually need some rebuke and we need some realignment so that we get back in step with what we know is true, to what we hold to in our faith. So we're going to read Paul's rebuke and his realignment of Peter, and then we're just going to wrap it up by talking about what we need to do to keep in step with the gospel in our own lives, not just in our own lives, but in our own community as people that gather together collectively as a family that proclaim the name of Christ. So let's pick up here chapter 2 and verse 11, and this is what it says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is another uh, name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, 
I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, hey, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I'm going to stop right there for a minute. We're going to go through verse 21 eventually. So what's the issue here with Peter that Paul is drawing out here for the Galatian church. We want to actually go back. You don't have to turn there, but we want to go back to Acts 10, which tells us the story of Peter and a guy, uh, a guy that was part of an Italian cohort. He was a a leader. Um, He was like a soldier. His name was Cornelius. Now, what we know is that Jews had been given certain dietary and like ceremonial laws that they were called to be uh, observed if you were somebody who was of the Jewish faith, which meant All right, follow me here, that certain foods were either clean or they were unclean to eat. And because of this, uh, Jewish people would never eat with Gentiles. They would never eat with Greeks. So what happens, if you go back to Acts 10, is that God told Peter in a vision, he said, hey, all foods were now clean, by the way. Since Christ died, all foods are now clean because it is faith in Christ that makes a person clean or unclean. It's not the food's that they eat. So when Peter received this vision from God, it was all good. He accepted it. He received it. He believed it. And he began to eat with Cornelius. And he, he began to eat with, with all the Gentiles. So the, again, this was, a, this was a Jew who had lived his entire life, you know, with all of these dietary restrictions. And now, man, he's just like, he's eating, right? Like he's eating all the stuff that he, that he can't eat, like me, like last night or whatever, right? Like, you know, I'm trying to do Whole30. And then at some point I feel like, why am I a slave? And then I just start eating like everything that I want because there is therefore now no condemnation, right? Because what God has called clean, I should not call common, right? Unfortunately, it's it's not the same thing. But this is what Peter was going through. And he now sat down with freedom to eat with Gentiles. and, And this was a good thing. So what's happening now in verse 12, which we just read, is that eventually Peter began to slide off the tracks a little bit. He began to separate himself from eating with Gentiles out of fear of the circumcision party, which, by the way, does not sound like a party to me, <laughs> if I'm being, being honest with you. So Paul, Paul's, not, Paul's not having it, okay? And this is, he's trying to communicate something to, that's similar to what the Galatian church is experiencing right now, right? But he's not having it. He says, hey, uh, this kind of hypocrisy is conduct unbecoming for a Christian. And the result is that Peter stood condemned, Paul says, and out of step with gospel truth. The other thing we notice about hypocrisy, as we've defined it, is that it's dangerously catching, right? It doesn't just affect, you know, the one who's being hypocritical, it doesn't just affect them, but they can bring people in with them because verse 13 tells us the rest of the Jews and Barnabas followed Peter's lead. So Peter's hypocrisy actually led to other people following him since he was a leader and a pillar of the church, and now they were following his example. So what we learn is that Peter's hypocrisy then, man, it was rooted in fear. It was rooted in pleasing men over God. And look what it led to. It led to racist and contradictory behavior. 
Look what Paul tells him again. Let's read this again in verse 14. He said, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said before them all to Peter, if though a Jew, you a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, look, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So out of fear of others' opinions, Peter's behavior didn't conform to his beliefs. And you know what happened? Separation. The result was separation, right? So when we look at this, right, this is a lot just to take in here in the first eight minutes, right, of a sermon, but what we want to do is we want to, we want to step back a little bit and think of some of the ways that we as Christians are hypocritical, right? Because I think that they're, they're subtle, right? How, how do we separate ourselves from others, maybe without even realizing it? Maybe you separate yourself from those who hold different political views than you do, but are sitting in the same warehouse. Or maybe you uh, separate yourselves from those that hold to a particular church tradition, maybe that you didn't grow up with and you don't necessarily agree with. Or maybe you separate yourself from those who don't share the same socioeconomic status that you do, and it makes you uncomfortable to get close to them or to invite them into your house, right? Or maybe you separate yourself from those who you believe have less sanctified habits than you do. So the question for us is, well, is this us? Is this you? Do you call common what God has made clean? Because that's what God said to Peter when he gave him the vision. And Peter said, Lord, I can't eat those foods that you're telling me to eat. And God said, Peter, don't call common what I've made clean clean. That's what God said to Peter in Acts 10. Because you know what's interesting about all this? This is the very, what I just described, all those different things that can create separation. This is actually the very uniqueness of the church. It's the uniqueness of the church, which is a gathering of saints that, listen, may have very little in common by the world's standards. Because all that stuff I just listed off, world standards. May have very little in common with world standards, yet at the same time, share the greatest commonality because of Christ. Ephesians 4, 2 through 3 says, Paul to the church in Ephesus says, look, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that includes all of these little things that can turn into hypocrisies for us if we let them separate ourselves from those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, this is one of the reasons that we gather in weekly community groups, to be honest with you. Because you know why? I'm going to tell you why. Because anyone can fake it on Sunday. We all can fake it on Sunday. I can fake it on Sunday. You can be polite on Sunday. You can sit on the other side of the, of the warehouse on Sunday. You can remain unchallenged in your silent separatism, right? But every week in a community group, right, in someone's home, there is a Republican sharing a meal with a Democrat. I know you don't believe that, but we have Democrats in this town. There is a wealthier woman praying with a woman of less means. There is a teenager reading the word with a teenager who is struggling to believe the word. Do you see what that does? 
doesn't allow us to separate. That's not a plug for community groups. It's a plug for community groups. <laughs> it's saying get in with people that have been called to be your community so that you can't fake it on a Sunday, so that God can do that work in your soul that, by the way, Paul is telling us he was doing in Peter's soul. And you know what? Look at Peter and Paul here. A former Pharisee calling out a former fisherman for keeping Jewish laws that he once killed Christians for not keeping. It's insane. What are the odds? Well, the odds are this, is that the gospel sews together what sin and hypocrisy separate. All right, does that mean everything is permissible? Are you just saying everything's cool, Ronnie? Of course not. But our standards begin with grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which means our behaviors must conform with the good news and how we approach all these things, right? Because hypocrisy damages your witness, and it drives a wedge in your relationship with Jesus. When Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles, he was not believing that God would give him grace to withstand the naysayers, right? Hypocrisy tears away at your testimony. It limits your love for others by saying something incorrect about God's love. It unravels the freedom God has given you to form relationships without prejudice. Peter's hypocrisy not only kept him out of step with the gospel, but with the Gentiles, too. There was something practical about his sin. How could he fellowship with them while he separated himself from them to save face? Well, he couldn't. So what's revealed to us through Peter's story, then, is like a lot of things, that the heart of hypocrisy is actually unbelief. Every time Peter ducked out from eating with the Gentiles, he was disbelieving God. He was disbelieving God's promises and that God actually noticed his behavior, right? It's a little Jonah-esque, isn't it? As he's sort of ducking out from the Gentiles, he's going to eat with the Jews, saying, yeah, I've never seen them before. I don't hang with them. I don't eat with them. Like, what, Pete? You don't think God sees what's going on? Well, no, actually, God, God notices. But hypocrisy, like all sin, is forgetfulness because it's blinding, because it's deceitful, Right? It's like three-year-olds who think they're being sneaky, right? Have you guys ever had a kid? Have you ever been around a kid, like a kid between the ages of one and three, and they think they're pulling something over on you? It's insane, right? They walk into the middle of the floor, they grab something, they try to like, hide it under like, a table as big as this stage and act like you don't see or something. It's, like, it's crazy. It's like they can't hide anything from you. They're not being sneaky, but in their deceitful little hearts. <laughs> yeah, all your kids are sinners. Let's just, let's just state it straight up here on the stage. They think they are, right? They think they're, but that's the pattern that we carry with us into adulthood before the Lord. So Peter's hypocrisy was rooted in unbelief. It was rooted in a fear that unstitches the fabric of gospel fellowship. And it will do the same to you and to me. But there's hope because Peter was opposed by Paul, but he wasn't disposed of, okay? He was a brother. He was a brother who needed loving rebuke, but he also needed gracious realignment. Paul just doesn't stop 
at the rebuke. He pulls Peter in and he gives them something to remember about the faith that they held in common. Let's just keep reading here. Verse 15. Again, this is Paul talking to Peter. And he says, hey, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, listen to this one, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul rebukes Peter. He gets straight up in his face, but then he graciously attempts to realign him back on gospel rails. And look, look how he does it. He begins by using the word we in verse 15. You see that? That's a, that's a nuance. He's not just pointing. He says we. He says we are Jews, Peter. We know the law. We are children of promise. And then he says, yet we know, in verse 16. He says, and yet we know. Don't, don't miss this. Don't miss the gracious way Paul encourages his brother, right? We want this to be a model for us in how we approach our brothers and sisters when we find ourselves in similar situations. He says, and yet we know. What did they yet know? That justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not by keeping the works of the law. It's very clear in that section. It's not clear all the way through. We're going to clear it up, though. But didn't Peter know this already? Didn't he already believe this? Well, yeah, but he needed realignment in this truth like you do, like I do. I mean, listen, the minute we stop preaching the gospel to ourselves, Something and someone else is willing to step up to the pulpit of our hearts and declare to us, I am the good news. That's what was happening with Peter here. Something else was telling him there is something better, there is something gooder than the good news that you know exists because of justification by faith alone. So what does that mean? All right, let's take some time to flesh that out. What does justification by faith even mean? Martin Luther said, this is the thing that the church stands or falls on. He said, this is it, justification by faith. So if you know one thing, you need to know this. J.I. Packer, a theologian, sums it up like this. He says, to justify in the Bible means to declare. It's like of a man on trial that he is not liable now to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. So justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. So Paul is saying that we are declared not guilty of our sin through faith in Jesus Christ. 
because he took the penalty for our sin. And in fact, uh, we're going to look at this down, in, down the next couple of weeks, he, he points to Abraham eventually as an example of what this looks like practically, what justification by faith looks like. He talks about this in Romans 4. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, by doing good things, by keeping the Jewish laws, he has something to boast and brag about. But not before God, Paul says. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes on to say, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Do you guys understand that? So when you go to your job and you do your job, you earn your paycheck for a job well done and sometimes not so well done, right? But he says this, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's justification by faith. By faith, we believe that because of the work of Jesus, God will not count our sin against us because Jesus took it. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our record because our record's worth nothing. He sees Jesus in his spotless record. Martin Luther said, God's approval isn't based on what a person does. He said, rather, he accepts what a person does because he already approves of the person, right? So what is the result then? What is the result then of being declared righteous, of being justified by faith? Keller again describes it like this. He says, now that Christ's life is my life, Christ's past is also my past. I am in Christ which means that I am as free from condemnation before God as if I had already died and been judged, as if I had paid the debt myself. And then he says this, listen, and I am as loved by God as if I had lived the life Christ lived. That's how insane and radical it is. So this brings us back to verse 20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Keller goes on to say, he says this, listen, the inner dynamic for living the Christian life, it's right here. Only when I see myself as completely loved and holy in Christ will I have the power to repent with joy conquer my fears, and obey the one who did all this for me. Dude, that's good news. That's freedom right there. So where does that leave work then? Because again, we, we always got to balance this, right? Does that mean we just stand back and man, we, there's, there's no obligation for us to work towards holiness? Where does that leave work? Well, we work now because he loves us instead of working so that he loves us. There's a big difference. Grace doesn't give us license to live however we want. It gives us freedom to live to please Christ. Right? Here's the thing, right? You guys that have kids, or maybe you guys that are teachers, and you have kids that aren't your kids, but they feel like your kids. You know? Um, there, there's, you don't want your kids merely to obey. I remember when our kid, when she used to have to obey us when she was a kid, um, 
I remember when she used to just kind of stomp away and do everything we asked her to do. That didn't cut it, right? We were like, change your attitude, be happy doing that miserable thing that we asked you to do, right? As we're yelling at her to be happy, right? But it's the same thing with God, and he's not yelling at you to be happy. It's the same thing, oh man, I'm really stumbling right now. It's the same thing in this sense. God cares about the motivations of our heart, right? It's not enough just to walk around like the Pharisees and saying, fine, I'm doing everything you want me to do. No, 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 no. That's not the point. The point is that there's a directional, motivational change in our heart where we now love God and our love for him increases the point to where, man, we, our whole being is consumed with desire to please him because we're already in. We're already saved. We've already been delivered right? It's in actuality that our good works are what give good evidence that the gospel has actually changed the motivation of our hearts. Why is this so important? Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So all of this is so that grace is not nullified. Nullified means to make of no value. If grace has no value, Paul says, then Christ died for nothing. There's no reason for him to die. This is what Paul means when we go back to verses 17 through 18. This is a little confusing. Let me read this again, and I'm going to flesh it out really quickly. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, or another word for transgressor is sinner. So in other words, listen, if we flagrantly sin because we know, hey, I've been justified by faith, everything's cool, does that mean justification, justification by faith actually promotes us sinning? Well, he says, hex no, it does not. If someone claiming to be justified, this is what he's saying, continues to build on sinful patterns that Christ destroyed on the cross then it kind of proves that this person has not grasped the gospel, but has used grace as an excuse to keep on sinning. That's what it's telling us here in 17 and 18. So this is why we're careful with people who live like heck, but claim that there was that time they accepted Jesus in their heart. Which, by the way, accepting Jesus in your heart, that phrase is found nowhere in Scripture. That's why we don't actually use it at the church, okay? Now, I'm not going to get off on phrases, okay? It's okay if you use that phrase. It just doesn't tell the whole story. But what does that do then for us when we run into that? Does that make us the salvation secret service? Well, no. And some of you need to stop being the justification by faith alone jury, and you need to cool off a little bit with that, right? Notice something here. Notice that Paul doesn't call Peter's salvation into question. He doesn't. I remember this story of this, uh, one of the, uh, the guy who, uh, the guy from the EFCA, the Evangelical Free Church of America, he's, he's part of making sure that all of our documentation, our theology stays all squared away, and he works at the national office in Minneapolis. His name is Greg Strand. And I remember him teaching us one time in a, in a particular seminar. He made this comment, which I, thought is, which I thought was amazing. It's always stuck with me. He said, there have been seasons or moments in all of our lives where someone observing our behavior questioned whether we were even saved. And that's true. That's absolutely true. I remember somebody was, uh, this, this was a couple years ago, 
I remember somebody was driving down the road here in, in Ashland, and nobody here in the, in the, in the room, unless she showed up, uh, and he stopped, and, and we'd had a little bit of a, of a strained relationship, and he, he kind of slowed down, made a comment through, through the window as he, put down the, as he put down the window, and I just, dove, I almost like dove through the window, I was so angry at him, you know, and I just spouted back, you know, these comments, and Melissa's right next to me, you know, so I, I was... I was caught and I was found. Man, that was a particular moment that if any of you would have seen that moment, you would have said, didn't he just preach on Sunday? What was that? What was that whole thing? What was that whole justification by faith alone thing he just preached on Sunday? Right? So we know that grace doesn't give us license to sin, but we know that grace allows us to understand something that our sin has been taken care of and that when we do sin, we can give it back and we can offer it to the Lord and we can repent. Paul was being gracious with Peter. There's a way for us to approach brothers and sisters when their conduct is out of step with the gospel. And the words slow, kind, gracious, merciful should always describe our posture. Because listen, another way that grace is nullified is when we don't show any that's another way that it's nullified. So here we are at the end. How do, we, how do we keep in step then with the gospel and avoid this kind of hypocrisy that Peter found himself caught up in? Number one, we call ourselves out. Call yourself out. Have an honest conversation between you and the Lord that he would reveal. Pray that he would reveal any area of your life that has fallen out of step with the gospel. Call yourself out. Go a step further. Go to a friend and ask them the same question. Ecclesiastes 7.5 says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man than to hear the song of fools. It's a good thing when somebody wise tells you something about you that you don't have eyes to see. Proverbs 27.5 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A guy named Greg Morse, who was writing an article for Desiring God, said, Godly friends will wound us for our good. They'll rip open our carefully crafted excuses and stun us back to life. Listen to what he says. But safe friends are dangers to our sin. Paul was God's grace to Peter to get him back on gospel rails. But let me encourage you now, though, really quickly in another way, okay? Because when we read this passage, our first tendency is to put ourselves in the place of Paul, isn't it? And we want to grab our capes, right? We want to become part of the justification league. We want to be a vigilant opposer of hypocrisy, right? But if we really believe God, if we really understand the gospel, we'll really see ourselves in the place of Peter, won't we? And we'll do what Jesus instructs in Matthew 7, 5 when he says, hey, First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We'll end up humbly confessing the ways we are out of step with the gospel so that when we observe a brother or sister who may be, we can approach them as brothers and sisters and walk alongside them with a humble sobriety that longs for restoration over condemnation. I recently spoke with a friend of mine who is a family pastor in Louisville. His name's Jared Kennedy. 
And I was asking him about some of the ways that they teach their kids. They do their kids' curriculum. And he said something really significant that I thought really struck me. He said, what we try to do every time we lead our kids through a Bible story is he said, we teach them to identify with the one who needs Jesus the most. Isn't that a good word? That's a good word for us. That's a good word when you buy the Jesus Storybook Bible and you lead your kids through that. That's a great question to ask them. Hey, who's the person that needs Jesus the most? Guess what? That's who we're like. Because the only hero of any story in the Bible is God. It's not David. It's not Daniel. It's, it's God. And it's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. So we need to call ourselves out. Secondly, we need to do some honest realignment like what happened between Peter and Paul. Remember, Peter was still saved. He was a brother. But there were things that were out of step with the gospel and he needed realignment. Here's the question. What in your life is out of realignment? It's out of alignment with the gospel. If you've been saved by Christ, it means your sin has been crucified with him. And your hopelessly sinful, unrighteous, condemned former self is dead. And in its place is Christ living in you instead. That's true. That's truth. This means everything in you, though, needs to be brought back in step with the gospel. That's everything. Right? Your thinking, your behavior, your feelings, your desires, your motivations. Be honest about what needs to die in your life. And by the way, it's not just behaviors, but desires for what shape those behaviors. Look hard on those neglected areas that you dismiss and you claim ownership over because they are your master if Christ is not Lord over them, right? It's kind of like your body. It's exactly how your physical body operates, right? Any of you guys start neglecting dental hygiene and just expect to have a nice set of healthy teeth, you're wrong, right? Your teeth will decay. And what does the pain do? It affects your entire body. For those of you who have battled with a toothache, right? I mean, the rest of your body feels great, but not so much because this one area is infected and decaying. That's what happens when sin goes undetected, when it goes neglected in your life. It infects all the areas of your life. Remember the story of Cain uh, and Abel? Remember the first two sons of Adam and Eve? Cain becomes angry and jealous of his brother Abel because God accepted his sacrifice. And his anger began to rule and fester and control him. And God told him, God visited Cain in Genesis 4, and he said, hey, brother, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. God said, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we must remember what Christ did on the cross so that sin might not rule over us. Paul says in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, this is what Paul's hammering all through the book. This is why he opposes Peter to his face. Number three, we want to rehearse the gospel and rejoice in Jesus. In fact... Christ did not die for nothing. He died for you. It was for freedom that Christ set you free, we read in Galatians 5. 
John Bloom says this, Jesus died for persons with names, faces, personalities, disabilities, histories, and sins. He did that because he loves each person. Every sin Jesus bore on the cross had a name attached. They were real thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions. It was real anger, real lust, real evil motives, real murders. Some of these sins were yours and some were mine. So we need to rehearse the truth of the gospel. Well, what is, what is a rehearsal? What do we mean when we say rehearse? It's when you practice something until it becomes second nature. Right? Is the gospel well rehearsed in your mind? Is the, the heartbreaking act of selfless love that Christ demonstrated on the cross constantly being practiced in your head so that it sinks to your heart and comes out your hands so that your love, joy, faith, hope, desire, and delight for Jesus becomes more and more mountainous when set against all these other things. This is keeping in step this is keeping your heart bursting and overflowing with love for the Savior of your soul and passionately, listen, hating and despising and killing anything that would seek to destroy your joy for Him. So call it out, man. Do honest realignment and rehearse the gospel so that rejoicing becomes the ever-increasing outpouring of your life and your soul. Not hypocrisy, not separation from the saints, but satisfaction in the keeper of your soul who keeps you in step by the riches of his grace, which, by the way, is yours through faith in Jesus Christ, who is our only hope in this world and beyond. This is the good news. Let's pray. God, thank you that we are able to read Paul's words, which are your words, to grasp what justification by faith alone means, to take stock of our own sin and hypocrisy, to look at the ways that we have separated ourselves from others. God, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you would do that heart work in us by the Holy Spirit right now and reveal these things to us that need realignment. It's a gracious realignment because you're a gracious God. So Lord, we pray that you would do that work and we would experience the joy that comes from knowing we are free. We have found freedom in Christ. Lord, let this be the greatest news to be celebrated and to be rehearsed every facet of our life. Don't let us walk out of here so forgetful, so eager to get back to the life that is enslaving us. Lord, do work in us this morning. Lord, let this cause our hearts to rejoice because we're all here and we're all gathered and we all have opportunity right now to come before you, to repent before you, to ask that you would take our lives and wash us clean. You restore us like you restored Peter. We know that eventually Peter 
ate with the Gentiles again. This hypocrisy did not follow him for the rest of his life because you restored him and you did it through a brother that was kind enough to love him with rebuke and realignment. So God, let us receive that well, whether it's in a prayer to you where you reveal these things or in a conversation with a friend or a spouse. I pray that we would do this hard work knowing that by your grace, Lord, we've been given all things, all freedoms, and all measure of joy in Christ, who's the Savior of our soul. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Together we said, amen.